welcome to Lang Time Chat, episode 18. I, what? Oh, right, right, right. No, no, sorry, I, I got caught on this. Should we like look at this camera? Like, should that be the thing that we're doing? If, when- As if we're talking to this camera? We when this goes, when this goes live on YouTube yeah. um, later, uh-huh. and people see the videos it is helpful if we're looking at the the camera yes okay so it, it, like when here you you look at the screen right now i'm looking at the camera this yeah, looks at the screen. this looks normal does this look normal does this yeah. look like okay i'm looking yeah. at it all right good okay all right good okay so um we got a new web camera um not because there was anything wrong with the other one but because uh we installed a new floating desk in the new office and I guess I was mistaken about how high this floating desk should be off of the ground. And so the computer is way up high, is way up high. And so if we turn the, the camera on, it's looking down at us as if it was, you know, a helicopter shot. In other words, it's if you tuned in for the last live stream, um, yeah. it, it was looking down on us and that is exactly what situation we have. Mm-hmm. The desk is a good 10 inches too high. I, I guess it might have felt like to viewers like this, this is what it must be like to be Spider-Man perched on the wall above somebody's computer as they're doing something else. like that. That is exactly what people must have thought. Yeah. <laughs> a little thrill. I always want what it would be like to be Spider-Man. Yeah. Well, now you know. All right. All right. Okay, so today, yeah, I don't know what the topic is because it was you, David's turn. You didn't prepare anything. No, it's your turn. I have it on it's the calendar pick. that this is Jesse's day to prepare. Nope. All right. So what are we doing? Favorite birthdays go. Favorite birthdays. Yeah, your favorite from birthdays. my life. Yeah, over the years. This is so random. <laughs> uh, well, actually, okay, so I, I did think about this because, uh, well, okay, so I have I have ideas, but then the question is, have we done this before? We will talk later about how my version of preparing a topic is very different from David's version of preparing a topic. Okay, mm-hmm. so what you have prepared is a list of possibilities, but you have no idea if we've done them before. Is yeah, because I mean? have vague memories of doing something like this, but I don't okay. remember. Okay, so go for it, and I will let you know. If I remember, have we talked previously about applying to and succeeding in graduate school in linguistics? Oh, wow. No. You're sure? Not on a podcast. Dang. All right. And then that's what we're doing. Wow. You went there. Okay. Yeah. Is it, is it a little bit too risque? Do you want me to give the same spiel I give my students? You tell me they want to go to grad school in linguistics. <laughs> Are some of those students listening right now? Um, I don't. They may be, and they're going to know exactly my first question. <laughs> my first question is always, "Are you sure about that?" <laughs> <laughs> because graduate school is a serious investment of time, energy, and money, and. Um, it is something that you have to be so passionate about that you can't imagine not going to graduate school, um, especially in today's market, unless you have a um, precise outcome that you're going for. For instance, a job that you specifically want that says 
you must have a master's degree in linguistics or a related field or something like that, um, it isn't necessarily worth it in today's market. That's so that's where I start is like, how, mm. how much do you really, really want to do this? Because it is going to be at least two years of your life for a master's program. Um, if you want to go on to PhD, that's even a, a bigger, more serious question. Um, but yeah, my first, that's where I always start is like, really think about this before you, before you jump in. So my personal experience with graduate school is that I basically just applied on a lark because, um, you know, it was just a whim, mm -hmm. right? I wasn't planning on doing it. Um, and it had virtually no financial impact on me. I came out ahead. <laughs> that is not the story you hear most of the time and not the story you hear, especially now. Because um, right now, um, yeah. even getting any funding for graduate programs in some places is so competitive that you cannot get funded until you're a PhD student. Um, and other places are not like that, but there are definitely schools where it's like they just they won't even touch you with funding until you're a PhD student and they won't admit you as a PhD student until you have um, either a year experience at that university because they want to make sure they want to invest in you or until you have a master's. Let's talk about that distinction uh, first off, because um, uh, number one, I think it's important for everybody to know the distinction between a master's program and a PhD program. Because there are differences. So, for example, the universities that are near uh, me, so in Southern California, near us, actually, we're both here now. But um, the state schools, so like all the Cal States, like Cal State Long Beach, Cal State Fullerton, uh, don't offer PhDs. Uh, they do offer master's degrees. So, for example, both Cal State Fullerton and Cal State Long Beach will offer a master's degree in linguistics. Um, these programs are unfunded in that nobody who applies as a student is going to get funding. It's not even a part of the discussion. You're basically investing in order to get a master's that you are hoping to do something with. Um, a PhD program, on the other hand, is different. Um, and there are two ways to get into it. So uh, what Jesse just described is a situation where they expect you to have like a year's worth of experience or already have a master's degree before they admit you. And that's probably the smart thing to do. It's probably the smart thing to do for them, mm -hmm. for them. That was not my experience. Um, the PhD programs I applied to, it was just straight in, um, straight out of undergrad. And uh, basically they were just competing to get you, uh, which was delightful. Um, so I applied to two PhD programs, one at UC Santa Barbara and one at UC San Diego. I got into both. Um, UC Santa Barbara offered me, uh, what, like, a, I think it was the first year free plus just $15,000 they would just give me. Um, and then UC San Diego offered me, I think it was um, just the first quarter free. Um, and then maybe a small stipend because that was all they could afford. Um, or at least for somebody like me, which was, I mean, I think they evaluated my abilities better than UC Santa Barbara did. So they really dodged a bullet. <laughs> UC Santa Barbara really dodged a bullet by not admitting, or by, by me not accepting them. Um, anyway, but then after that, after that first quarter, um, 
I was given the opportunity to do one of two things. That was to be a TA or to be a research assistant. Uh, those uh, programs aren't always available or because, you know, they're competitive. Um, but uh, at least in the case with UCSD, it was usually there were there were more spots available than grad students, so you could always you could always get it. Um, and sometimes you could get stuff outside of the linguistics department. So, for example, while uh, while Erin Erin um, my Erin was at um, UC San Diego, she was in the Dimensions of Culture program at. UCSD, where um, what was that? It was like it was like what freshmen do when they come into college. Like it was a freshman writing program. It wasn't connected to linguistics at all, um, but I don't know. They had spots available. I also interviewed for it, and they turned me down. That was their mistake. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I would have been great, but um, I was much happier TA linguistics anyway. I would have been too. It, it looked like a lot. <laughs> yeah um but the cool thing about being a ta was it paid for your tuition and fees so that was covered every quarter you see san diego you did it and then it paid you money um and so like it's they actually just paid you money and so because it was a job yeah and then like and so that was really cool and then there was health insurance through it, but then I just didn't have it because this was back in 2003 and you didn't have insurance. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You're something. Um, no, uh, so... I'm feeling our grad school experiences were a little different. They, I mean, it, it's not that it was so drastically different, but no, I definitely, like I applied for the PhD program um, at Boulder and mm -hmm. they let me into the master's program. And they were like, you can apply again next year. There was a distinction? Yeah, yeah, big distinction. They let in, mm -hmm. I wanna say in general, there are 50 to 60 master's spots and um, about 15 PhD Whoa. spots. 50 to 60? Masters and then okay. about 15 PhD. There was, yeah, the UCs, there was just no such thing. Like you got a master's while you were there, but there was no separate program for that. But that was because of the way California was set up with the distinction between state schools and the UCs. I thought there was a similar distinction in Colorado, I guess. Not. There could be because there's, you know, Colorado State versus yeah. University of Colorado. Right. I, as far as, as far as I know, at least at the time, I think um, CU Boulder is the only one in Colorado that had a PhD in linguistics. I may be, it may have changed since then, um, but in general across the nation, there just aren't as many PhD programs in linguistics. And because um, I mean, I, you know, having students actively researching it right now, it's still like you're limited, especially if you're not going, um, if you want just, to go for linguistics and not go for say TESOL or something like really specific mm -hmm. um, because that is another issue is that a lot of times people want to stay close to where they're from or you know they have a house they have a family in a particular mm -hmm. area and so they want to go to grad school somewhere near that area and but then they find out all the programs are you know like really specific like oh you can get a master's in applied linguistics or a master's in you know teaching English as a second language 
um, kind of thing. And if that's not what they want, then it's, you know, you're kind of stuck. You have to think at that point, am I going to move for grad school? Because that's another thing to consider. Most of the time when you go to grad school, you are moving for two to four years. And so it's like, you do have to decide, am I ready to pack up and move to a new location for this, you know, educational path where I may or may not do what I want to do. And so, you know, that, that's a huge decision. Um, Cause I mean, both of us moved, you stayed in California, but yeah. you did move. Um, mm -hmm. You were at Berkeley, you were here and then you had to, you know, go to San Diego. Um, I had a, a, a bigger move. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did um, move to Colorado for my program um, from Missouri, and so yeah, I mean, to San Diego, I mean, it's like the hour. Yeah, and mine was almost twice that. So you know, bigger yeah. move, yeah. different states. You're just driving through flat, though. I mean, I can drive through LA. <laughs> That's why it's eight hours. It's it's really only four miles. Just, just eight hours to get through LA. Uh, they lie to you on the maps. California is really only like this big. And, um, <laughs> and the the long the the length on the map is really just indicative of how much traffic you'll sit in. Uh, <laughs> it's this tiny state, Rhode Island, really. <laughs> By the way, I had this this strange idea because it seems like totally impossible. But can you imagine if we were, you know, humans as we are, the same size as we are, and our voice still carries and we can still produce sound the way that we can. But imagine that with our legs, like the fastest we could do, like literally from here to the door, would take a half an hour. That would be awful. But it also, would. this is really random. Anyway, yeah, I thought about it a lot. Like, you know, just like, just imagine if somebody was on the other side of the room and it'd be like, hey, you want to do something later? Sure, let's get started. And so you get up and like walk to the same spot. Really you what you're describing right now is like one of those nightmares where you get stuck and somebody's chasing you and you literally can't move faster than like this really slow paced run. And so like, I really don't want to keep thinking about this because it's going to send me into a panic of remembering some nightmares. But yeah, anyway. I had one of those time. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving back. Yeah. Um, I, I, no. I actually, no, I did want to build off of something okay. that you mentioned, which is that if, if I thought at the time that I had to pay for graduate school, I wouldn't have gone. I mean, it's just a given. I mean the very notion. No. Um, anyway, so yeah. So yeah. So it's a bit of a different, different experience. Um, I mean, and also there were so like once you got in, um, the linguistics TA ships were so competitive that um, hmm. a lot of the students were just straight up told like if there's another subject you can teach, go go teach for them. And so like um, there were people, you know, like who were funded, who were funded, but were actually funded through like Spanish. Yeah. And so they taught Spanish um, and that gave them their their stipends and their tuition and everything was covered. Uh, but linguistics itself could only offer so many. And so right. um, I did. I mean, I did TA and do what was called GPTI, which um, that's where you're the graduate part time instructor. Um, and so you're actually the instructor of record for. So like I did 
I taught one of those huge lecture halls with 200 students and I had TAs working with me to do the Friday recitations while I did all the 200 people lectures. That's amazing. Yeah, that never, um, we didn't really do that at UC San Diego. Mm. That's how I taught intro to linguistics yeah. with 200 students. And then I did um, a class that was on, it was called study of words and you investigate the, the Greek and Latin origins of English vocabulary. And that one had 150 students. Oh, right. Uh, it was similar at UC San Diego where there were a lot of graduate students who uh, because the linguistics department at UCSD ran uh, all language instruction at the school, okay. which is unusual. Um, mm -hmm. But because of that, um, they could offer a lot of funding through that by having graduate students teach um, classes where they happen to be fluent in the language. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, because they they said the same thing that you know the the linguistics TA ships you know were rare and very competitive, but. Knowing me, I knew that I would always be at the top of the list, so I was never concerned. <laughs> wow. Um, you're, sure, you're sure right. This thing doesn't have like a little tiny thingy up there. I know. That's why when you told me, so he is pointing out the fact that when you are the person leading the Zoom meeting, there is no timer telling you how long you've been recording which is something I have told him multiple times before. Yeah. And I think this is the first time he's actually believed me since he's seeing uh, the, what Zoom looks like from my end as the I, one hosting the meeting. Why would I believe you by anyway. your word? Anyway. Um, that, like, should, we should have paid attention when we started. Um, I, I think I kind of know. Okay, It'll cool. be fine. Right on. Um, but no, I, I will say though, like even though I give the dire warnings to my students about you know, grad programs and grad school and making sure that that's what you want to do. One of the reasons I do that is quite often students come to me saying, well, I want to be a professor. Hmm. And I, I love it. I get it. I'm one. Um, and so obviously I support that vision. But one of the problems um, with that is right now the academic job market is so horrible um, that it's like there's just not only no guarantee you'll get a job, but like right now, if you find a job, it's like, you know, look on social media, you'll find out that you're actually kind of a unicorn right now. Um, and so because of that, it's like one of those things where it's like, I don't know what the job market's going to do by the time you finish your PhD. So it may be better. It may have loosened up. It may, you know, there may be more job openings, but right now we have far more PhDs in, uh, in linguistics than we have linguistics professor positions open in the country and even I'm going to go ahead and say in the world. And it's to the point where like, when you look at the job listings, like they know, they, they know what they're doing and universities will be like, we want someone who specializes in phonology, but can also teach Arabic and teach French literature. And like, they know that they can do that because there is going to be somebody who, who meets that qualification. Um, and so it's like they legit look at their curriculum and say, we need someone to teach these like three seemingly unrelated courses. And so we're going to hire one person who can do all three. And I promise you, they will find someone who can do pretty much any combination they want. Uh, but that does make it hard for somebody coming into it who doesn't meet these really random qualifications. Um, and so that is another reason why I say like, really think about what your goal is for grad school, um, before going into it, because I will say with all my dire warnings, 
I loved grad school. I mean, I loved every minute of it, even the crazy paperwork and the hoop jumping and the, the amount of writing and everything. I just, I loved it. Wow. I mean, I thought beforehand that I knew what graduate school was going to be like, and I was right. I thought I wouldn't like it, and I didn't. I loved it. Like, I seriously, as soon as I finished my PhD, I started researching other programs because I was like, I want another. That was me. And so, by the way, in case you're wondering, you're like, well, what, what was she looking into? Um, my main focus at the time was I wanted a PhD in the classics. And so specifically Greek, and I was looking at uh, Greek, you know, language, but also architecture. And so that was my, my vision at the time. I wanted, I, I found programs, I was ready to apply. I, if I could have afforded to just keep going to grad school, I would have. My goodness. I would be a perpetual student. No, I, I, I certainly don't regret going to graduate school. I got some really key pieces that I needed there, especially in terms of Conley, but I mean. I legit would go research back. It's just torture. It's just constant torture the entire time. <laughs> Like, why would anybody do that ever? I mean, unless you were going to get something out of it, I mean. Because you learn. But you Much have, less pressure. But you have someone telling you, you did a good job. And you did. <laughs> Self-burn, huh? Those are rare. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, Wow. Okay. So we did have very different yeah. grad school experiences. I remember the first time I saw a graduate student, it was for an English course in Berkeley. Um, and I just, you know, saw this person, she was a, she was a, you know, TA for, uh, for English, which was uh, 45C. And it's like, I kind of saw what she was like and learned more about what that life was like and what graduate school was like and being a graduate student was like. And I was like, well, that's definitely something I never want to do. And my opinion has never changed since that point. So, I mean, I, you know, grad school is not for everyone. That is for sure. Oh, um, and I know that, I mean, even people who at the end of it can still say for the most part, I enjoyed it. Um, I also know that um, the pressure it does put on you is not for everybody. And so um, like, there are horror stories that everybody can tell about, you know, the way that pressure can make some people crack. I mean, and so it's, it's really, that is like, and there's not the mental health support in place to help um, a lot of students at, at the university level and that's undergrad and graduate both. And so it's, I mean, it's definitely an, a problem um, across campuses. I, I guess like it, it wasn't like it was it was really a ton of pressure. It's just not fun. Um, like, like I would literally be in school full time for the rest of my life if I could be. I mean, undergrad is fun. Like graduate school is not fun. It's like here's here's that stuff you like, but then there's more reading. Yeah, but grad and, school is undergrad on crack. And the that's why I liked it. Subject like, matter is not as interesting. Like I took two classes in syntax and one in formal semantics. What the hell? Like <laughs> I wouldn't have done that if I didn't have to. Two classes. I did a whole class syntax. on tense and aspect. Just tense and aspect. Well, now that sounds so cool. That sounds like fun because it's probably it was probably a bit more a theoretical, yeah. 
Yeah. Another, by the way, another uh, another full phonology class for the entire thing is optimality theory. That's four classes that were just like no. <laughs> Four entire classes. I guess you should have gone to Colorado. I, I don't know what to tell you other than Boulder was a lot of fun. Did, um, you, did you learn optimality theory? I did. Did you take a class on it? Not a whole class. Our phonology class, we, um, so I, so I took the um, doctoral level um, phonology class. Hmm. Um, so like the way CU does it, it's 5,000, 6,000, and then 7,000. Or the levels excessive and 5,000 is the master's classes so those right. classes can only count towards a master's degree they can't count higher 6,000 level courses can count for both master's and PhD the 7,000 level courses you have to have enough of them to qualify for PhD you know curriculum and so like those are the classes that really you know the, for the most part it's really only the people going mm. um, to the PhD level that you're going to have in there and so I took a phonology class at the 7,000 level. And um, we learned like four, three, four different theoretical approaches. And then like our papers that we wrote for that class were oriented towards like you would take the same data sets and do it in all, all the theoretical approaches and then have to write up the results and how they differed and what the, the processes were for each. I don't know, I thought that was super fun. I mean, although I will say, though, I'm not one for theory in general, and I'm very, very um, grateful that the uh, faculty advisor who I worked with for my PhD for the dissertation, um, she appreciated that, and I was able to get away with doing my dissertation so data-oriented that I only talked theory in one chapter, and that's kind of unheard of for a lot of dissertations. Yeah, well, um, that actually sounds kind of fun where it's like you're just looking at theory. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like it's a little fun game. Mm -hmm. be like, you know, here's here's four different engines, turn this stuff through and see what, see what the results are. That's kind of cool. But it's like, now this is an entire class where it's like every single assignment in the final paper was all optimality, theoretic analysis. I thought you liked that kind of stuff. The way you write the phonological rules that we That's use. Not I'm not saying it is, but the fact that you're so persnickety about how they're written, I really thought you would have enjoyed some uh, theoretical underpinnings to you have to write things this way. Well, I found the, the one I like, and so that's <laughs> the one I do. But no, like, optimality is just, it's just, a, it's just a mess, and it takes a lot of ink. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just a disaster. I don't I don't like that. It really, it really did. Uh, it really did teach me some good things when it came to register tone languages and uh, stress assignment. So that was good um, because there are things you wouldn't have thought of when it comes to a conline, uh, especially stress assignment. There are just ideas you wouldn't have thought of um, that are pretty cool. But no, outside of that, no, I mean, just an absolute unmitigated disaster. I mean, not as much as formal semantics. Have you taken a class in formal semantics? Only at the undergrad level. <laughs> Oh, why would they even offer that? Oh. Yeah, so what's really interesting to me, because it, it depends on where you get your program and what the classes are and how they're structured. But like um, when I did my undergrad in linguistics at Truman, I took all these classes that were labeled, um, they were like marketed as just advanced linguistics and then they would rotate topics like, you know, phonology, syntax, morphology, whatever. Um, and so they would rotate, but like the expectation is you had to take one of them to get your 
you know, to get your major. That was a requirement. She had to do like at least one of these and then, you know, all these other things. But they didn't set a limit for how many times she could take it. So I took it like four times. <laughs> and so I did phonology, I did semantics, I did morphology, I did syntax. And like the level of analysis that we did in that class was actually what was required at the master's level. And so I submitted my work and syllabi to those classes to Boulder and they looked at it and said, yes, this is equivalent to what you would learn here in that class. And so I actually got out of taking most of the master level classes and was able to jump right into, like, I think I only took three master level classes at Boulder during my entire time. And I was able to jump into the doctoral classes right after that. Yeah. So it was like one semester of, cause I needed diachronics and um, I still needed a phonetics cause I did phonology, not phonetics. And then I, um, for funsies, did computational linguistics because why not? I didn't have a computer background, by the way, and I was the only one in the class who didn't. And so that was a lot of fun. I had a lot of catch up to do to figure out how to write code. That was the only required class that I missed that I didn't take. Uh, you didn't take computational? Well, I was there. No, I took morphology twice, not because it was different. It was the same class. I just liked it. Just wanted it again. And it was good. That, that second time really fit for me. Really, really got it. Oh, that is to say, if you have an undergraduate degree in linguistics and you are going to grad school, make sure they know what your undergraduate curriculum was because you may um, be able to count some. And that's not to say you need to. You may actually want to take their version of the same class, but you may be able to get some of those credits counted um, or, or waived so that way you can like take an even bigger variety of electives and whatnot while you're there. Yeah, they made a new rule for, because of, of me and Aaron after we took the phonetics course there, um, because the phonetics we had at Berkeley was so good that um, we ended up causing problems. And um, they basically just made a rule and said, if you've taken like phonetics course, it's essentially good enough in undergrad and you don't have to take it again. <laughs> Uh, children. Yeah, it wasn't us. It was that situation was resolved after we left and mm -hmm. amicably. But um, anyway, uh, shoot. Oh, yeah. So, by the way, it, it, the, the UCs, it was like there's lower division, upper division, and that's just undergrads. So, zero to 99 or one to 99, and then 100 to 199. And then Graduate is just 200 and above. And there's no distinction about that. Everything's PhD level. It's so weird because Texas isn't like that. New York isn't like that. Missouri isn't like that. Yeah. Colorado wasn't like that. What is up with California? <laughs> it's just the UC system, though. I also like that you went through the UC system and I went through the CU system. Even though it's, it's called University, University of Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, CU. That's just so weird. CU Boulder. <laughs> but, um, okay, wait, there's there no important thing that I thought of, and I can't remember where it was anymore. It's important. If you go to Boulder, eat at half fast subs. Hmm. I have to say it slowly because if you say it fast, it's like half fast subs. And it's like, what? That's, what kind of subs? They probably did that on purpose, I'm guessing. I, exactly. I've been to Boulder so many times. I've been to Boulder 
after I've known you, mm -hmm. then on the Boulder campus, after I've known you, you should have asked for eating recommendations. It's a really they didn't good ask. Place. I know, but I, I somebody out there may want it. I, I oh, somebody out there may want it. Well, if you go back, I've eaten at Subway with you. Yes, because that was what was available on the two and a half hour drive from the Houston airport to the Nacogdoches campus. I've talked with you about how much I like sandwiches. <laughs> so, hey, David, Not, if you go, if you go uh -huh. to Boulder, you should eat at Half Fast Subs. Okay. And where is it? Is it on the campus or is it? It's right off the campus on University Hill. Okay. Thank you for that recommendation. You're welcome. You're going to love it. I bet I will. Sure, I'll be there again. They do. They do like me over there. <laughs> okay, but okay. Sorry, moving. None on. of them told me about it. Okay, let me make sure it's still open. You you keep the topic moving forward. I'm gonna make sure it's still open because you know it's been a while since I've been. Um, this is a this is going back a little bit, but in terms of making yourself more competitive, more competitive for graduate school if you're applying, but also uh, more available to get funding, um, something that is kind of like an undercurrent, I think, from both of what we said, but I don't think I've ever really thought of before, is uh, become fluent in some language, <laughs> like um, while you're there, like enough that you could teach an undergraduate course in it. Yeah, there it is. Still and do you, do you see, oh wait, the picture changed. That menu wraps around, there's over 130 subs that they make. Oh yeah, gee, if only, if only this was something I was interested in, if only sandwiches were something I loved. Oh my gosh, the portobello rumor, that sounds to so good. Recently. Wow, they have some specials going on right now that sound really good. Mm. So yeah, get over there. And go, go enjoy. Okay, yeah, so you were saying, sure, like that would definitely help um, going into grad school, especially for funding purposes, mm -hmm. to, to speak another language to the point where you can teach it. Yeah. I only, like I have never mastered any language to the point where I could teach it. So I definitely needed to be in the linguistics classroom. Yeah, I was fine. Not the language classroom. Yeah, I was I was fine enough doing whatever. Um, but um, but yeah, like so if if you are somebody who especially um, you are taking language courses at the university level with the idea of mastering something, and you don't have any particular desire to learn a specific language, um, learn something other than Spanish because that's the one where it's going to be easiest to get uh, professors um, or, or graduate students to teach them. Uh, learn something else. Um, and you could also like look at the graduate programs you're applying to based on the language offerings they have. Um, because uh, you might, you know, you might take four years of Arabic and feel very comfortable teaching it and then get to a university where it's just not offered, um, which would be a bummer. Um, yeah. Italian, French, something like that. Well, in saying that, though, I would also forewarn you that a lot of language programs are closing down in universities across the country, outside of Spanish and like the bigger ones. Um, and so that definitely, like, yeah, you definitely need to look into what would be, because I know um, 
SFA, they shut down Latin and Greek totally. Mm. It's so sad to me. Anyway, um, but like, um, for instance, SFA offers, you know, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and German, and ASL. But in terms of teaching staff, Spanish is the only one where you would even have a shot of being able to teach as anything. Really? Because the French classes, the professors we have also have to teach Spanish because there's not enough French classes for both of them. Oh, I see, I see, I see. There's, um, you know, again, same with Portuguese. It's like there's like just not enough classes being run and offered for people to actually, you know, the ones who are hired as professors to teach them. So they are actually also teaching Spanish. Um, and so that is like, one qualification to that it's not so easy necessarily to yeah. get into the other languages maybe but maybe just try to find or if you have the option maybe look at a place that's less rural there's probably less interest right it's happening at a lot of universities so i would just say beware okay. um and also um look at the state requirements i think texas is the only state i've run into that has this but if you are looking at going to texas which there are a lot of good grad programs there um, you have to have 18 hours before you can step into a classroom of graduate work in the field, which means you have to have at least two years at complete at the graduate level before you can teach a class. Really? Yeah. And so you can't get funded the way that you can at other places. Dang, we got undergraduates teaching classes at Berkeley. <laughs> Not in Texas. And so, I mean, because that is definitely a problem that a lot of grad programs are running into because it's like a state mandate. And so, um, I mean, it's things like I can't, I can only teach certain topics at the university because I only have, you know, linguistics graduate hours, which means like I had to get a special waiver to teach freshman composition hmm. because I don't have 18 hours of English credits. Dang. Yeah, that's a bummer. Why is that a bummer? For me, no. Yeah. Oh, for oh. yeah, it, made, it makes it yeah. makes it so I get to teach linguistics. I'm happy with that. Well, sure, but I, I just mean it makes it a less attractive place to go to. If you're if one of your goals was to get funding. Oh yeah, no, and so you because I mean there are the bigger Texas schools figure out ways around it to figure out how to get students funding. But if you're going to a smaller regional school, I promise you funding is gonna be an issue. Um, and if you do get funding then like, awesome. That's so good. Um, but yeah, a lot of our students um, who are serious about graduate school um, end up having to go out of state because that's that's who's giving them funding for the uh, you know master's and even PhD levels. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, Like right off the bat. Yeah, by the way, we've been talking about uh, public schools at, yes. uh, in the United States, if you're looking at a private school, basically you can't go unless you're going to be fully funded because it's literally like fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year. You do know though that state schools, if you go out of state, are over forty thousand a year, right? Hmm. For grad school, and that's just school that's not living on campus. Yeah, but they take care of that if you know if you know like, if you're funded. Yeah. And if you're not. Yeah. But then like let's let's know? back up. I was not funded my first semester at CU. Really? Really. So you have to like pay a bunch of money. Yes. 
why the hell did you do that? Because I wanted to go to grad school. <laughs> because I wanted to go to grad school. <laughs> My goodness. I just don't get it. I don't see the, I don't see the draw. <laughs> anyway. Um, no, like I literally, when I was my senior year of college, I was like, the only thing I want to do is keep going to school. Like I could not see myself doing anything else. Uh, it was just like, I don't know what to do. So I guess do this. No, I was that will, that will put off reality for a couple more years. I was committed, but I only applied to one school. because so I was like, this is it. This is the one I want. Dang. Dang. <laughs> only one school. It was out of state. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's it's a good program. It is a good school. Didn't even, didn't it's like even, top ten. They didn't even look at UCSD. You know, Doug Ball got in there too. At Boulder? No, UCSD. Oh, yeah, yeah, UCSD. Okay, I told you that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because that's how you actually met Doug. In was person. At yeah, when we were our admin weekend at UCSD. <laughs> I thought like that was one I actually looked at because my advisor went to UCSD. Greg Richter. Hmm. And so he's at Truman. Yes, I've met him. Yes. And so I looked at it because I was like, ooh, maybe I want to go there. I think he did it for undergrad, though. I just remember it was on his list of schools he went to. I'll have to look it up. I'm going to look it up and let you know. You you talk now. I mean, well, uh, I would just say it seems like, I don't know, it feels like the the graduate student experience at UC San Diego is probably better than the undergrad experience. because it's like, I don't know, there's not much, there's not much campus life. And then, you know, generally I was a graduate student, people have cars and just make things happen. You know? Yeah, he got his MA and PhD from San Diego. His BA was Santa Cruz. Oh man, a lot of people, was, a lot of people uh, like that. So that was, uh, what, what, year? That? what year? I don't know. Isn't that a little, most people don't list their year on their website like that. They don't? No. Why not? It's like, I don't know. Uh, That's like, hello, here's my age. On my, on our, uh, so the Society of Linguistics Undergraduates, which is a, a club at Berkeley, we have a, we have a Discord. And for alumni, we put our, our graduation here next to our name, next to our nickname. <laughs> you have what next to your nickname, sir? I was not listening. Our was graduation here. Really? Oh, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I was reading. I was reading about office hours and being on Zoom, and I was like, oh, yeah. I got a little sidetracked. No, sure, but look at this. Truman State changed its logo. Yeah, I noticed that when I was looking something up. Um, I disagree. I, I disagree. You don't like the new logo? No, I don't. I liked what it. I like what they had. It was classic. It was beautiful. I loved the. Uh, I think it was the M that had that that dip in it. It was just gorgeous. It comes down like that. Yeah, this is very... Um, <laughs> that will come across in the podcast very well. The yeah. M and Truman had like a the middle part that comes down as you go up and down for that, that mm-hmm. stroke before you go up and down again. But that second, that that first time you come down, it would like swoop in like the opposite swoop from a J, you know, swoop down and then the yeah. other end, the other half. Of this, the is, this is very modernist. And I'm sure that there's like, you know, what do you call it? Like, there's probably symbolism to why you know this. This symbolizes boldly looking into the future and blah blah blah. Well, the T looks like it's part of a sunrise or something. It looks like it's 
fractured and moving forward. And it's that makes it sound a lot more exciting than it is. It looks like um, modern art. Well, anyway, you should have seen the disaster that it was when they tried to change SFA's logo, and it was so bad, and there was such a revolt that there was an actual online petition. And it got so many signatures that they had to recall the new logo, but they had already done stuff with the new logo. And so we spent so much money fixing the logo mistake. Okay. I have, this is a sidetrack, but I have to tell you about this. This is so amazing. This was 2010. It was 2010 or 2011. And the entire UC system decided to rebrand. Uh, UC system had the same logo going back to... 1850 something or whatever and it's just like a, a book and then it's got like a you know a, a, like a, a scroll work around it and says Fiat Luke's uh, let there be light um, and it looks very classic very traditional very very old and they decided to do a um, a new logo that said UC and it was it looked like an MS Paint logo which is a block U and then it like had a gradient at the end of the U, like it, like you know, with little circle dots, and it got lighter and lighter, and then mm -hmm. it was a C of the same character. It was very apparently there was going to be a different blue and yellow color for each campus, which uh, which was which saved it a little bit. But um, and, and you know what? It started off as the gradient, and then it got darker. Um, it looked like it had been designed in a couple of minutes. It. Uh, it didn't look classic at all. It looked very ugly. Oh, our logo disaster looked like somebody who didn't know how to use a computer sat down at Microsoft Paint and tried to do yeah. something. Yeah. And so uh, not only this, this was, this had recently, so they announced this and there it was everywhere. But this was just after there had been uh, protests at UC Davis. And there was video that you can look up on YouTube of an officer at UC Davis. There are these students that are just lined up on their knees and an officer very callously, not even looking them in the eyes, just goes down the line and sprays them all in the face with mace. Holy oh yeah, <laughs> it was, and it was like the protest was like it was just a conflict with like the university president or something. Um, it was really really shocking, and it was like somebody had taken a, a, a you know an image of that officer spraying the mace and made it look like he was spraying these. <laughs> With a new UC logo. Oh my God. Anyway, so I was on Facebook at the time, and there was somebody who said, I'm a reporter for NPR. It was into like a Berkeley alumni Facebook group. And it says, I'm looking for people to, I'm doing a radio story on reactions to the new logo. And I was looking for people to talk to. I said, Oh, I'll do that. And so I put in my, my phone number. And so then I started, I was doing this interview with this guy and telling him, like, this is why, you know, you know, this is why I think it's not a good idea, and blah, 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 blah. We went all through the whole detail of it. Because, you know, I'm big, one thing that I'm big into is typography and logos. And so this was like right in my wheelhouse. Anyway, interview is done. And then, like, at the end of it, he says, okay, so just for like, you know, records, you know, like, what year did you graduate? What was your graduate? And what's your profession? I said, oh, I'm, I'm a language creator. You know, I created language for you. And she's like, really? Like, I thought that was the reason I was being interviewed. I thought that's why you were interviewing me. So it was a UC alumni and I was like semi-famous. He had no idea. And so then, yeah, then there was a big radio story. It was like, yeah, the next day they retracted all the work. Wow, because of you. <laughs> it was because of you. It was all me. That's all it. Me. Nothing uh, else. Yeah, no other reason. Wow. <laughs> that is insane. 
anyway. So, okay, yeah. so to get back though, yeah. yeah, private schools, you definitely need funding because mm -hmm. it's going to be expensive your entire uh, yeah. career there. And um, the, oh, I will also say they'll try to get you by saying like, oh, we'll give you like partial funding or we'll give you like like this stipend that sounds like really good. We'll give you like a $20,000 stipend, not, you know, not knowing that means you have to pay an additional $30,000. Yeah, plus you still need food yeah, oh, and right, rent. And to live, yeah. Um, and so that that was the moral of that story and then mm -hmm. also um if you're going i have no experience with graduate schools outside of the united states so like i can't mm -hmm. even begin yeah. to tell you what process or what you need to think about if you want to go to grad school outside of the us and so unfortunately i i just like i know there are so many good universities and so many amazing programs but like i can't even begin to tell you what you need or how they work or how funding works or how any of it works yeah also very different if you are applying from within the u.s to someplace outside yes. the u.s versus you know just in within those countries itself yeah. but obviously when you talk about linguistics one of the first universities that pops up well a couple of them are mcgill and uh, in canada and the university of edinburgh in scotland um, so those are two spots that a lot of people will target for grad school um, but because of that um, i'm sure that between the two of us we have tons of contacts both places. Yes. I'm glad you do. Yeah. What contacts do I have? Seriously? I, I mean, you know people. In the US? Yeah, but like, you don't know anybody in McGill or? No. Really? Really? Wow. Do you think I'm lying to you in the podcast to be like, yeah, reach out to David? Um, I, huh. no, I don't know anybody. Huh. All right. Okay. So, okay, so reach out to David if you want him to get in touch with his contacts, which are quite extensive um, at either of those universities. You know, you, you make friends, people bounce around when they get jobs and stuff, you know? I, sorry, I can help you with any U.S. Oh. I think there's like one person on my Twitter group who teaches in England somewhere, so... I, I can figure out where she teaches, but that's, sorry. Moving on. So yeah, yeah, if you want, if you want help, um, figuring out information outside of, um, grad schools here, that David, your guy. <laughs> I think that was the moral of that story. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. yes, what are you? Just yeah. Four. It is, it is indeed. And so we're in our last, like, I would say five minutes or so. Got it. Okay. So then five minutes. Um, no, we're not doing fatty cake. Okay. No. <laughs> So bizarre. Just to ask. This is why I've been asking. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, it. I, I don't know what else to say about grad school. Obviously, it's How different for every person How going. It is, and it's different in every school, but in general. Oh, and how long it takes is going to be very different because. Yeah. Especially if you're going for PhD. Masters is more standard in the US, like masters, you're more likely to, to have a two year, maybe a three year um, experience. 
but for PhD, it's vastly different depending on school advisor and what you end up going into. What was your experience in terms of the level of difficulty uh, moving from undergrad to graduate classes? I was very well prepared. And so it was... And that's a shout out to your... To oh my God. Yeah, it was amazing. Because like I, I honestly, the first semester, it was like, oh, that's all we need to write? <laughs> and, you know, like, and for most people, it was like, you know, going into the grad classes for the first time, it was a shock to see, you know, like the, the paper length or whatever. And um, I mean, yeah, I was, I was shocked that that was all we had to do for the class. Um, I think the hardest part was that there were a lot of classes I had where the entire grade was your final paper. And that was it. And so it's like you do this entire semester where you have no idea, like, how are you doing? I don't know. Like, I'm going to class. I did my presentations that I was supposed to do. You know, I did these other things. But you don't know until you write your final paper and then you submit it. And then you just have to wait for grades to be released because it's like that was my entire grade. Um, and so that was a big difference for me because it wasn't like, you know, a lot of, especially at the, at the higher levels of the courses, it just, you didn't have those sort of signpost things that you could check in with and say, oh, I need to do better on the next assignment. It was like, no, you have one shot. Um, and so that was kind of scary. I think that added to the pressure that, you know, speaking mm -hmm. of the pressures of grad school that um, can be very, very difficult to work around. Yeah. Um, for, for me, it was a similar experience in that uh, there wasn't a huge uh, jump up in terms of difficulty. Uh, something that was a, just a bizarre thing you rarely think about that was difficult to adjust to was uh, Berkeley was on the semester system and UC San Diego was on the quarter system and what a nightmare. Yeah. What a nightmare. Yeah. The, the classes like that shouldn't be 10 weeks. Just, no. Just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so that was an adjustment because it'd be like, yeah, literally the one week and it's like, okay, so for your midterm, excuse me, <laughs> just start it. Um, and something that was really nice, uh, and, and I, this is a, this is an intangible and it's very, very difficult to get a sense of this, unless you could just talk about the graduate students, is the kind of in-department support that you get. Like our, our second year at UC San Diego, there was an entire class that was, uh, supposedly like devoted to us writing our, our comps paper, which was our first major paper, which was your equivalent of your master's thesis. Um, but really what it was, it was just like, there was like everybody got an A, there was really no assignment. You just worked on whatever you were working on at your own pace. Uh, it was led by you know, different faculty member each year. And they just kind of were there just ask, you could ask them questions and they kind of guided you through what it meant to be an academic, um, what you could expect, you know, questions about, you know, applying to jobs, anything like that. Um, and it was, it was really nice. Um, it was, it was, I mean, something that helped cement that it was, this was definitely not my life and not where I should be, but nevertheless, it was really, really appreciated. Let's say, um, yeah, some programs better prepare students than others. And I know like for um, our program, one of the things that um, was lacking was support for like when you became, a, you know, when you did become a teaching assistant or a part-time instructor or whatever, mm -hmm. it was, I 
you're just thrown in the classroom. And like, I had no classes or instruction or like other yeah. mentored thing that said, this is how you teach a college class. It was really just, okay, how do I remember it was taught to me? And like, how can I model that and yeah. do the same thing? Um, and so it's just like, you're just thrown in a classroom. And um, normally people would have more, more, time leading up to it, but my very first experience teaching a, a college class um, was three weeks before the semester began. The person who was supposed to be teaching this particular class got another job. And so they were like, yeah, I can't teach the class. And so they asked if I would do it three weeks before the semester began. And so it was like, it was literally like, not only had I not prepared for the class, I'm using somebody else's syllabus because, you know, like the book, you know, the like textbook, everything was already like on order for the class or whatever. And so it's like, I'm using all of their setup for the class, but like I had never run a class before. And it was mm -hmm. just like, here you go. And um, so the support was lacking there. Cause I was like, I don't even, like, I don't know if there's like a center I can go to, to learn how to do these things. Um, and so it's a learn as you go experience the students made it even better as five months pregnant. <laughs> It was, it was great, um, but yeah. uh, luckily I had a group of, it was a smaller class, so that one only had 20 students, but um, luckily the students were willing to, to be flexible with me as I, as I learned how to be a teacher, um, but that was, that was difficult, and like we didn't have anything built into our program, at least at the time, there was nothing built into the program that said like, this is how you write, you know, a, a letter or a CV or um, any of that. So like, I didn't know how to apply for a job. Mm. And that was, again, something I had to learn on my own and, and seek other people out to help me um, learn that information. And, you know, of course, I could, you know, talk to my advisor and get advice on it. But it wasn't like, like, there are other programs I know of that actually have an entire class where like, that is your goal is to yeah. write your CV and you get feedback on it you know, write your, your letter that you're going to use to try to apply for jobs. They tell you, you know, give you feedback on it. Um, survival advice for academic job markets and academia in general. And like, I had none of that. So it was just like, boom, this is a new world. Yeah, we did get that um, in this class at UCSD, which was wonderful, but uh, probably the same amount of instruction regarding teaching. Like, just, here's a class. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, a graduate student, this is when I was an undergrad, uh, one of my graduate students in an English course said, you know, in terms of teaching, he said, this is what happens. Basically, you go through undergrad and you're just learning this stuff. And then you get to graduate school and they're like, don't worry about teaching. And then you get your first teaching job. And what they told us was, you already know how to teach. <laughs> Like, sure. Yeah. Sure. And I know that's, it's, it's gotta be really, at least for me, it was really jarring and probably was for you too, coming from the background that we did, which is, uh, our, teachers. Yeah, our parents were teachers at, you know, K-12 teachers. And it's like, there's an entire, like, there's an entire process. You know, there's all this learning that you do. You work, you know, you do student teaching where you're actually in the classroom with another teacher who's there telling you this is what you do. This is how you set up your lesson plan. Like you have to get a credential. And then it's like, then when you're teaching, there's still like, there's still stuff you learn. There's still in services well, you go to. Well, let's, let's back this up. This is how crazy it is, right? Like 
I've been teaching at the university level since 2005. So I have 16 years of teaching experience. Mm -hmm. I could not go to any single public school anywhere, walk in and get a job because <laughs> I'm not, I don't have the background in education. Yeah. So like I would have to get another degree or like a, go into a program that's like a teacher program to teach me how to teach so I could teach, you know, you're, I can, if your 18 year old is a senior in high school, I can't teach them. But if your 18 year old is a, is a freshman in college, I can. And so it's like, that's how weird it is to, to think about. It's like, it's, it's a learn on the, on the go kind of situation and not a, we're going to train you and, and teach you how to, how to do this job. Yeah. Which means of course that every single instructor is learning for the first time every single time uh many of them often learning uh you know poor you know methodologies right, right. that just are not effective or detrimental learning uh and then many also learning things where it's like wow after teaching this course for three years i figured out this really cool thing and it works really well and you know you talk to like a k-12 teacher's like oh yeah that's this and they have a term for it and it's like we learned that on <laughs> but I remember it because I had to figure it out for myself. Well, and of course, then the other problem is you figure out this one thing that works and you get so excited and then you go into the next semester and you have an all new group of students and it totally doesn't work anymore. And yeah. you're like, well, yeah. that was fun. That was fun while it lasted. But yeah, because I mean, that's another thing is mm -hmm. um, especially at the college level, you don't get a year with your students. You don't get that growth. It's you get a quarter, a semester, whatever. And you know, so like when you have repeat students, that's awesome because it's like, yes, like I, I, you know, know how to work with you and I know, I know how to get the best out of you. But like when you're just rotating students in and out, it's like, oh, okay, by the time I really figure out how you learn, I'm going to, it's going to be the end of the semester and that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. <laughs> but anyway, I think we are at the end of the episode. Yeah, probably. And so I, I hope maybe someone has either learned something or you've at least enjoyed just listening to us go back and forth and talk yeah. about grad school. Yeah. Well, we can do a podcast now. No, because this is the podcast. But don't you want to talk to me? Oh, good Lord. No, no, Please. I don't. In fact, I, I just want to say, stay grammar. <laughs> and can't wait to see you all in the next live stream and yeah. talk to you in the next podcast uh keep those podcast ideas coming we do yeah. have one marked for when we actually have uh, bookshelves with all the books out that we could actually yeah. uh, do justice yeah. on the topic so please know that we yeah. have seen the topics we just needed to wait until the resources are here to do them justice <laughs> and in the meantime Stay grammar. Bye, everybody.